Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. And this is the podcast where we try to bend the motherfucking arc of history towards a more livable planet for you and me and everyone else. We're going to dive into a specific question affecting everyone on the planet right now. And if it can kill us or make the future a hell of a lot cooler for everyone, we are in. Our guests have included scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, and even a reverend. And fishermen we now, too. Oh, yeah, they yep. were fishermen. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Uh, and we work together toward action steps that our listeners can take with their voice and their vote and their dollar. Yep. And this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, hand drawings, uh, menus of cocktails or dessert, any of mm. those things to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can just email us like the kids do at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people mm-hmm. and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, this week's episode, Brian, we're talking about blue carbon mm-hmm. and the patriarchy mm-hmm. and how one has ruined the other. Yes. And I'm going to let you go, go ahead and guess which way that goes. God, I hope these people guess it right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, our guests are Dr. Sarah Myrie and so very close to being a doctor, uh-huh. Priya Shukla. We believe in her. And I think it's fair to say that they were not each other's <laughs> biggest fans. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they were the greatest things ever. They're so amazing. Um, and they just loved each other. They loved God. each other and more or less cut us out of the conversation, which is just the way it we should be. We don't need to be here. That was the whole goal. It was the whole idea. It was awesome. Um, anyways, we had a great time. I think you guys, this one's a little bit longer, but um, stick around to the very end. So it worth listening to. fantastic and informative and profound and moving and funny. Um, we, we got jokes. There's jokes in there. Uh, yeah, I think you guys are going to love it. So let's go talk to Dr. Myrie and Priya. Let's do it. Our guests today are Dr. Sarah Myrie and almost Dr. Priya Shukla. And together we're going to talk about blue carbon, uh, which is unfortunately not a um, like an impending sequel to the highly underrated Deep Blue Sea. Ah. Um, but in fact, might be our best chance to suck carbon right on out of the air. Uh, Dr. Myrie, uh, Priya, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, same here. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk about solutions for a change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thrilled is not the word I, you'll probably use at the end, but we'll, um, <laughs> we'll take it and we'll put it on our, what is it, like our, our dream board? Yeah, our dream going. board. Yeah, we'll keep that going. Let's get started by uh, having you two, if you don't mind, uh, just tell us who you are and what you do. Um, Dr. Myrie, if you want to start. Yeah, totes. Um, You can call me Sarah, too. So I am a climate and ocean scientist. I am the kind of scientist that has been thinking about how the ocean and the climate are related both in the present and also in the past. And um, I have a PhD from UC Davis. And um, I'm recently, I've been finishing up a fellowship with Project Drawdown. And I'm also the oh, yeah. executive nice. director of Rowan Institute, which is a, a think tank for um, climate leadership in a hot and dangerous world. So that's a little bit about me. Do you feel like that's enough job? So you do nothing. We, are there more than we should find? I also, my, my kid is turning six in like a week. So oh I'm also, gosh. I know. And I feel, How are you feeling? I'm, 
every birthday that comes along is really like really tender and really sweet. And I kind of remember like the day and the week that he came into the world. And it's really like this kind of liminal space that I get to cross with him. I feel like my body's doing it too. So I feel good. I feel really good. Are you, I do my best to live in the moment for these things, but also have a pretty difficult time not going, this is all going way too fucking fast. <laughs> Super duper. Yeah. I can't believe how huge his body is. And I can't <laughs> believe the things that are coming out of his mind. And like his mm-hmm. sense of humor is ridiculous right now. Like he's been trying to do these magic tricks where he just yes. can't quite get the sequence of stuff. But he is so <laughs> delighted by his own like trickery of the, the people in the room. So it's a it's a really amazing ride that I'm like in the middle of right now. Nothing makes me happier than them thinking that it's the first time anyone has ever heard, for instance, a butt joke um, <laughs> or something like that. Because they're like, this is amazing and I am amazing. And you're like, yeah, no, I mean, it's great. It's great. But <laughs> welcome. P.S. Welcome it's a genre, to, to the world now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Go deeper. Work harder. Yeah, it's, it is a hell of a ride uh, to be on. The other day I was riding in the car and my... I, I have a six-year-old from the back seat. He said, you know what I think about a lot? And I was like, oh, gee, this could, this could be anything. Uh-oh. And he says, uh, "What? I mean, what happened before the Big Bang? And I was like, Jesus. Hey, 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 hey. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, what did you think happened before the Big Bang? Anyways. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. I like that he thinks about that a lot. Well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Priya, your turn. Match that. Yeah. <laughs> Who I are you? I try. Um, so... I am currently a PhD student at UC Davis, but this is basically my fifth or sixth stop in my very early career. Uh, I've basically thought about the ocean and the climate for almost a decade now. And in between finishing my bachelor's at UC Davis and now starting my PhD, I went and got my master's thinking about this stuff and then also bounce around teaching high school and working at a couple of policy and public education nonprofits. Uh, And currently, in addition to working towards understanding how climate change is affecting the seafood that we grow here in California, I also run an ocean and climate science column on Forbes's website. And I'm actually a board member at the Rowan Institute that Sarah is the executive director of. So I am privy to thinking about some of these really intricate ways that we can demonstrate leadership um, and thinking about the kinds of voices that really should be having these discussions on larger stages and really appreciate the venue that you have created for us here today. Oh, well, well, that's very kind of you. The, uh, all of the other places you named are are. are illustrious and, and impressive. So uh, once again, it sounds like a lot of free time on you. <laughs> time. Can, can I jump in to say that Priya and I actually have like almost more, like we have a more than a decade of relationship between us too. Because I, when I started my PhD at UC Davis, I was your TA. It's true. In biological oceanography. So yeah. And like, we both have come so far from that point, but I, re- I really remember, like, I remember that time really clearly and like, how amazing you were, Priya, and oh. what a freaking shining star you are in just in the world in general, like the way that you are in the world. 
So oh gosh. our field is really small in many ways. Yeah. Like we just, we know each other in ways that kind of transcend some, some, you know, sort of professional boxes. So. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And I really appreciate how we've been able to sort of cross pads in multiple ways uh, over the course of this past decade. It's wild. Mm-hmm. I know. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation because I actually don't think we've been able to share a platform and share our overlapping, but also disparate expertises in this way. Totes. <laughs> we have, we've we've only we've had a couple guests on at a time before, but only a, only a couple times, and they are truly the best because of what just happened. Like the respect that you have for each other, and the admiration and the love is just fantastic. It's the best, and my palms uh, are definitely sweating because I'm just feeling immense pressure to measure up for the for for this conversation <laughs> at this point. <laughs> It seems we should like take from their example there's a 10-year that relationship other. that's been building to this point, And now I'm like, I've made an enormous mistake. Uh, anyways, no, we're, we're here for it. Uh, could not be more excited. This is the greatest. Um, so listen, uh, Dr. Mir and almost Dr. Priya, uh, we like to start with one important question. I'd ask each of you to answer this individually. I encourage you to be bold, to be honest. You're here for a reason, and I don't mean on this podcast today on Skype uh, with a dial-up connection. I mean existentially. So I'd like to ask you, why are you vital to the survival of the species? I can go first if you're okay with that, Sarah. Totally. Yeah. I So I mentioned the two things that I did before about me being a PhD student, but also being a writer, because I think those two two positions that I occupy really go hand in hand. I think being a PhD student means that I'm learning constantly and where we are right now, where it basically we are in dire straits and we need to figure out a way to solve or live in this world that is really rapidly degrading and changing around us requires being able to accumulate and analyze and absorb and create new knowledge constantly. And so being in an academic environment, while it certainly has its pitfalls, also really allows me to do that and think about what am I going to do with the tools that I'm accumulating now? Maybe one morning I'm devoting to learning some really niche statistical model or something or technique. But what does this mean for understanding the survival of our species, but also other species in the world that are critical to our global ecosystem functioning? And then the other part of that is my role as a writer, where I get to disseminate information to people that I would probably never get to interact with otherwise. And so being able to use my expertise in that way to really think about what does it mean to be an ocean and climate scientist and then to share that knowledge with other people is something that I'm really always grappling with and trying to figure out what is the best way for me to do. And so while I don't know if it's critical to the survival of our species, I like to hope that I'm contributing to everybody's constant education about what we can do and how our world works. And then also trying to interrogate how we can do all of this even better. Well, then. All right. I guess I should stop being proud of myself for getting out of the house every morning. <laughs> Putting pants on. <laughs> yeah, I got pants. I'm going to be honest. It's like, 
<laughs> it, it's like an 80% success rate, to be honest. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, uh, all right. Well, uh, Dr. Myrie, uh, any thoughts? Um, I, you know, I just love you so much, Priya. And for anyone who's, and those of you listening to the, the podcast, like, I just want to plug Priya's column on Forbes. It's awesome. She's really covering such a broad swath of content ideas from peer-reviewed literature to political rhetoric and climate decision-making. Like, it's really good. So, like, go to Priya for one of the trusted sources on science conversations. And we'll share, we can share that in the show notes. She's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my... I think my role, like we, we, when before we, we talked about like, like whiteness, how whiteness works when we like were introing the podcast and, you know, I, I'm a white lady. Like I identify with white men a lot in a lot of spaces. Like I've had a lot of privilege, privilege. I've had a lot of doors open for me. And I think, um, my, I, I see my role as coming to terms and using that privilege, spending that privilege in ways that help to change the systems around us because the the systems of harm that we individuals are either complicit or benefiting from, like those systems scale up to a planetary level, right? The We're like nesting dolls of pain from like individuals all the way up to the entirety of the world. And connecting that story in public, you know, that is not a story that's that's separate from the ocean and from earth history and from our atmosphere. Like there's this narrative that like people are on one side of the equation and like the environment is on the other side. And that's, that's a false Mm -hmm. narrative. There's no separation between us and the world. We are the world. We are creating the world. And I kind of, I see my role in this heartfelt work, uh, trying to knit us back into a place where we, are seeing each other and seeing our role in the world more clearly. So it's it's a it's a really phenomenally weird time to be alive with the state of of the knowledge and the precipice of change that's in front of us and I want to be of use. Like I want to just do work that is helpful um and get myself out of the way so that it's not really about me being in the center but me like creating spaces where the center can include so many people and so many worldviews. That's what I'm up to. I, 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 yeah, I, I love that. Um, I, I, the, the more we can help folks understand that, I mean, at the very, very least we are, we are part of this thing and all of these things are connected uh, at the very least. And, and more so that we've, caused all the good and the bad and that we are the ones who have to fix this. I mean, what's the old Obama refrain? Like we are the ones we were waiting for, um, <laughs> the better. And then people, hopefully people understand what, what impact really means in their context. Totally. And I, yeah. I think, you know, being, a, a in the scientific field, you know, the tradition of knowledge building that Priya and I come from is one where, we are we we know that there are tools and that there are answers and there are solutions like the it's not all about um uh, you know the unraveling of the world it's also about like learning how the world works and through that mm-hmm. is a conduit to 
sustaining choices that um like that protect and uphold life on this planet so it's it's a it's we're all like connected in this fabric i think and um trying to trying to change these stories is um is really hard but I, it's really it's really important work I know you mentioned, uh, I believe you said you'd done some work with uh, Drawdown. Mm-hmm. Project Drawdown. Yeah. Um, we had on uh, the marvelous Dr. Catherine Wilkinson uh, at one point to talk about um, how important it is uh, there. I believe it's number six and seven, Brian. Uh, wow. Elevate, was it that early? No, not. Oh, uh, that's right. Not episode number. Number six and seven on the Drawdown list. On Drawdown, yeah. Uh, elevating, elevating girls and yep. and uh, women's health care. And she had this great uh, post on on Instagram this week, last week. Uh, that said, it is magnificent. It is a magnificent thing to be alive in a moment that matters so much. And I thought that's such a great way of framing it when everything can quite literally feel like it's on <laughs> fire all the time. You know? Yeah. Would- I want to add that I think what coming from this tradition of being a scientist, I use that as my coping mechanism a lot, where basically I will separate myself from a lot of the uh, devastation that we're describing right now. And Sarah, does this really courageous thing where she's always present with that. She's present with how scary all of it is and what it means to be a climate scientist, but then also to be a woman and to be a human being and to be in a position of power, but then also feeling inherent weakness and her ability to feel and express all those things and articulate them so well while I hide behind my microscope is something that I admire a lot and um, highly recommend reading anything she's written. I will send you some stuff, Quinn, afterwards if you want to put in the show notes. I have a couple of pieces that I really appreciate that she's written, but I think like this conversation for me, it took some mental preparation coming into it because I knew I'd also have to bring my personality into it. And that can be really hard for me. It's why writing for me is a little bit easier, actually, because I, I don't feel as present with it sometimes, if that makes sense. Is it, is it sure. because you, it seems like you indicated you try to separate yourself from that in your work only it's it's merely like a tool for coping with the fact that sometimes grappling with this stuff is really really hard and so i can be like let me go and figure out how to analyze this statistically because that seems a lot easier than actually visualizing what it would mean to lose a species sure sure it's a little just put your head down do the work we had we had a hell of a conversation and again i mean from from the perspective of a of a privileged white man uh living in one of the few people that can afford to live in Los Angeles we had a conversation with uh Nikki Silvestri uh, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with she's just fantastic and I'll send you guys the link to it mm-hmm. uh which was really getting into basically I I had reached out to her after finding some things and then we had a couple really great discussions and decided to record because I, again from my perspective I I had gotten this job is elective. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I never could be, but I've chosen to do this thing. And yet, so I could theoretically turn it off when, whenever I want, it's my business. I don't work for someone else, but dealing with part of for the newsletter, for instance, you know, I, I go through journals and, and mainstream sources and everything, hundreds of them every week to curate down to the most important things people read. And I'm choosing to intake some very bad, some very rough news that's not going to change anytime soon. And it had been a lot to deal with. And we had this really interesting conversation because she went from being uh, someone who directly worked on the science to someone who she basically turned her practice into 
therapy and when we called it it's a little bit of an ode to watchmen which is like who's saving the people who are saving the planet mm-hmm. because she was finding so many of her colleagues and friends just effectively bowing out because they couldn't do it anymore and so yeah. i yeah. i understand that need to separate yourself and protect yourself a little bit and just be a scientist for a few hours well compartmentalization is effective it separates ourselves yeah. so that we can be able to to focus and to make decisions and execute. Right. But then Mm -hmm. when you, when, when you also in totality, you look at that compartmentalization that you can be um, facilitating some real internal damage. And you're also missing pieces because like your emotional life is full of information for you about who you are and what you care about and what you want to do in this world. And by like turning that faucet off, you are disconnecting from yourself, which does a lot mm. of harm. So mm. the I think we are all grappling with the uh, the scale and nature of a problem. Like we we were not grappling with these problems when we were kids, right? We mm-hmm. were we were right. told a narrative about the world that the world was bigger than us. There was a, it was unlimited, like you know, for me, like the mountains of my backyard, that was the world. They, they went on forever. Mm -hmm. And as you grow, there's a feeling of almost betrayal of realizing, oh no, no, this is not a, uh, an infinite world. It is a decidedly Mm -hmm. finite world. And it has been treated in a way that, that has externalized so much harm. And also that that harm has been happening for a long time. And we are not the first um, community of people to look at what feels like an extermination event, and so there's a lot of right. there's a lot of wisdom in being human that we can like put on the ground right now and execute on. And you combine that with scientific expertise, and it's dynamo. Like that is a amazing combination, and that's why individual scientists that are in the public with heart and with head tied together, those are some of the most powerful public brokers for this information right now. And often, often, but not always, those are women um, because women mm-hmm. are socialized often, but not always to, to work collectively, to build um, community, to sit with each other and to be emotionally vulnerable. So we have, we can come to the table with really helpful skills in this space. That's what we need. Why can't everyone be like you guys? <laughs> Damn it. Jesus. It's called it's patriarchy. It's, it's, yeah, I know. God, um, I know. And white supremacy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it all goes together. It really does. It's a mess. Oh, yeah. Um, so many things. Colonialism. ableism. No, I mean, yeah, we're, these are, again, like systemic, you know, systems of harm that work together. Like the system is functioning exactly as it was built to to do so that's well, exactly our, that's it it's when people go around everything's broken everything's broken it's like no 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 yeah. no this is the this is how it was made mm-hmm. uh and that's what you know if you read like again we can go down any of these tangents which is like welcome to our podcast <laughs> but you know having read a couple years ago um the new jim crow mm-hmm. which is just uh, such a powerful incredible book you're just like oh boy i mean it's designed down to an inch of its life this way it's uh it's unreal so I, I get it. I get it. Um, all right. So listen, we're going to do the world's quickest context for the conversation today, just so everyone understands what, what kind of where we are. Sometimes this is very technical. Sometimes it's more uh, ethical. This is, we're, we're going to do brief because we've done 
uh, the ocean from a couple of different angles, and we want to uh, get get to you guys here. So, um, just for 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 blue carbon here, it's to be super duper clear. And 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 uh, Priya and and Sarah, please just jump in or hang up whatever you need <laughs> to do uh, to to make this go better. Um, I'm going to throw out some some numbers. I know that vary, but I tried to get close. But to to be very clear, the ocean uh, is already saving our asses. It it has absorbed by as far as I can tell, the estimates are 30 to 35% of all the shit we've pumped into the atmosphere. So you're welcome, humanity. <laughs> but from what I understand, of the remaining amount, 25%-ish has been absorbed by plants. And so that means that only about 50% has actually gone into the atmosphere. So it's that bad out there. Uh and we're only getting penalized at 50%, except that we aren't. Because the ocean's also absorbing 90% of the heat, and it has reached uh, a hell of a breaking point. And and I, 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 when I mentioned that, I think about what you were just saying, Sarah, about like we were kind of told this lie about what the world is and, and how it is finite. Um, and we are finding out so much more how everything, everything is connected from coral reefs, our incredible conversation with Dr. Kim Cobb, who won an award today, um, nice. to... The, the great ocean conveyor belt and they're changing and it's not for the better, or at least not for the better for us and so many other species. Um, so the question is, is what can we small humans do? Can we still count on the ocean? Uh, can we, in the words of one of our original guests and my favorite humans, uh, and I thought about her when you were just talking about scientists who combine their, their, their mind uh, and, and their heart, the great Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, can we use the ocean without using it up? And that's what I want to get to the heart of today. Uh, and of course, as always, we will get to the bottom of how our listeners can help. So with that, I want to focus on our question this week, which is how can blue carbon help save the day? And how can we not mess it up so the ocean doesn't, doesn't break? Um, so a little more context. Hopefully you guys can help. Blue carbon. It sounds like like a Derek Zoolander fragrance, right? Or like a, an iPod <laughs> nano color, right? It, it's not, um, but it is that cool. Ice. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, if you could just, one last step back for us. When did, we, when did we really realize how much work the ocean was doing for us? And two, when did we then realize how far gone so many of the ecosystems were from warming to oxygen dead zones to the corals and conveyor cycles. Um, if you could help paint that picture for us, I think it would be helpful for folks. Sarah, since you're the paleoclimate expert between the two of us, I feel like you can probably provide a lot of the really important context. And then I might just jump in with a, I might just jump in with a couple of things here or there, um, if that's okay with you. Yeah, totally. I mean, let, let's just go back and forth and have our feminist oceanographic argument um, on the podcast. Oh my God, I'm so yeah. excited. Let's go. Yes, please. Um, okay, so so I think like the the context here is like, oh, welcome to your carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen rich planet mm-hmm. that has had a carbon cycle in the four to six billion years of the planet's history that has determined the the history of life on this planet, the evolutionary trajectory of all of the lives of the life that we record, the the climatic history of the planet, uh, the oceanographic history, like the carbon cycle is a pretty fascinating part of this planet. And 
What's what is a little perplexing is um, in in many ways this planet should have been called ocean and not Earth. If you are going to take the balance <laughs> yeah. of like where is where is the center of of the the power of modulating the ecosystems, the environment, and the climate of the planet? It's in the ocean. So, what does that mean? The ocean is the largest reservoir. The deep ocean is the largest reservoir reservoir of carbon on the planet. So there's about between 500 and 600 gigatons of carbon in global vegetation. So like plants globally on, on mm-hmm. land, there's about 1,500 to 2,400 um, uh, gigatons of carbon in soils. There's 37,000 gigatons of carbon in the deep sea. Wow. So should Whoa. take your breath away. And this, this has been one of these kind of perplexing aspects of some of the conversations that that arise around climate change um because it it as an earth scientist you know i want to insert back into the conversation like hey yo this is the way the system has been working this is really fascinating and necessary for us to grapple with where is the carbon moving around on this planet where are the reservoirs that matter and how do we impact those reservoirs so if you're if you're curious about solutions like from a very practical standpoint, the, the the global community has been trying to assess, you know, where do we sequester carbon in the world? And people have definitely flagged like, hey, yo, carbon is being sequestered in vegetation. So CO2 in the atmosphere, inorganic CO2, inorganic carbon is being, you know, consumed by plants and turned into carbon-rich um, organic compounds and molecules. And all of that is locking carbon. You know, trees and forests stay around for hundreds to thousands of years. So then that that carbon in those organic molecules in the trees and forests and maybe in the herbivores and then in the carnivores that are eating that carbon, all of that carbon ends up going somewhere. It goes into the soil. So the soil is another place to sequester carbon, to retain it and keep it. Um, and people have identified these really important car- climate solutions around preserving and restoring soils and forests. But what's interesting is that in between the ocean and the land, about the same amount of, of carbon is being fixed into organic carbon-rich molecules through photosynthesis annually. But there's not a lot of standing stock of carbon in the ocean because we don't have you know, kelp forests that, that live a thousand years in the ocean. The mm-hmm. longest lived kelp is about five years, just a handful of species. So a lot of oh. carbon in the ocean is being fixed and then is dying off annually, sometimes um, shorter than that, and then sometimes on um, multi-year timescales. So where so that that shows you there's there's something to be curious about here. A lot of carbon, the sort of equal amounts of carbon being fixed on land and that carbon in the ocean, it's kind of poof, it's disappearing. Where is it going? It's going a great deal of it is moving into the deep sea where it can store and take up residence for hundreds to thousands of years. And that is the story of the thermohaline circulation, the the long-term movement and storage of of carbon and nutrients in the deep sea. I'll pause here and maybe (laughs) Priya, you can disagree with me or... No, that was, I, I knew you would do such a great job of painting this beautiful global 
um, millennia long picture for us, which is why I'm so glad that you kicked us off. I'll add that I'll add two things that are sort of related, but still not necessarily um, totally overlapping thoughts. One is that everything that Sarah just described about the carbon moving through the ocean, that is 80% basically of our global carbon cycle that goes and moves through the ocean. So it's really, it's what um, Sarah started this all out with um, by talking about how really this planet should have been called ocean is so true because I really struggle with imagining what climate change would look like right now if the ocean didn't absorb basically four-fifths of the carbon, or at least at least traffic four-fifths of the carbon that we have on this planet. So that is a lot for me to personally sit with. The other thing that I wanted to add is that the way that I've thought about blue carbon as somebody who's basically worked on kelp and then mostly just coastal systems is in fact just that, coastal ecosystems. So What Sarah said is totally right, that you have these massive kelp forests that basically are very large, charismatic algae, and they don't have very long lifespans. Some of them that are can live up to 20 years, but that's not that long when you think about the millennia that um, that Sarah just described. And then you get to these other ecosystems, things like seagrasses and mangroves and salt marshes. And that's where I, when I think about blue carbon, that's the picture that emerges in my mind. And it's these systems that have these really intense roots, things that kelp actually don't have. They don't have these really intense root systems. And those root systems are what keep the soil in place and what allows the soil to retain all that carbon. And what's also really tragic is that because these coastal ecosystems exist in this beautiful uh, space with high real estate value, we're seeing them disappear really rapidly. And so when you see this degradation of these systems, all of that CO2 and carbon that they've been keeping locked down for us it's um, basically pushed back out into the atmosphere. So it's definitely the uh, the CO2 that we are producing from just industry, but there's this whole mm-hmm. other part of the CO2 release picture that we don't really think about, which is us basically deforesting, if you will, these coastal ecosystems that have been helping actually store all this carbon for many, many years. We just had these uh, these two fishermen on, actually, and we talked about. Uh kelp and how important it is and how we all need to be eating more of it. <laughs> it's delicious. Yeah. It's, it's, it was it was very, very good yeah, conversation. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. That's interesting. Segue. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Please. Oh, I want to like, um, let's just go even like a little bit deeper with the blue carbon stuff because I mean, Priya pre- is, yeah, all day, all day long. Um, Priya <laughs> is exactly right. Like the way that blue carbon has been assessed by the community is the, the, the carbon locked or quote unquote sequestered mm-hmm. in these coastal ecosystems, wetlands, mangroves, salt, salt marshes, um, eelgrass. In a very parallel way, the carbon has been assessed by the standing stock of biomass and then the, the stock of carbon in the soil. But there's a there's an there's an additional component of this story that's really interesting, which is that these coastal areas and 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 to to be clear. These wetlands can either be a, a sink for carbon or they can be a source of carbon because when mm-hmm. they are degraded, they they release, they emit CO2 into the atmosphere. They they are they can go either way in this uh, strange math. So these ecosystems, the thing about photosynthesis, which is just freaking amazing, is that it's kind of a leaky process. 
And so the these um, photosynthesizers, whether they're um, angiosperms, boom, those are flowering plants <laughs> on coastlines, or whether they're Don't algae, check. they are mm-hmm. they're taking in organ- inorganic carbon to fix in into or into organic tissues, but they're also leaking a lot of carbon into seawater. And so a lot of carbon that's moving through this net photosynthetic budget is not ending up in the roots. It's not ending up in the leaves or the soil. It's actually being just shed into seawater. It's like Mm -hmm. carbon mucus, essentially. And there's dissolved carbon and particulate carbon. These, These are really significant parts of the budget. And this connects the coastal carbon with the deep sea carbon because that carbon mucus, that that particulate and dissolved carbon that's being shed from the coastal waters, a significant fraction of it is actually moving down into the deep sea into long-term storage as well. So that blue carbon in the coastlines, you have to think about not only the resident carbon in those places, but then the constant flux of carbon out of those spaces into the deep sea through residents as well. So the deep sea is definitely not disconnected from what is happening to coastal ecosystems and coastal carbon. This is insane. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, photosynthesis is rad. And mm-hmm. super messy, <laughs> and you and it's what it, what's amazing about it is that we are just we are still working to grapple with how it works in many places, and the problem yeah. with the ocean is that it's just a real difficult place to measure. Um, mm-hmm. It's expensive and it's dangerous and it's inaccessible. There's, there's sharks. critters, <laughs> like there's God, you know you have to wear like special sh- outfits. Like it's a whole situation. Mm-hmm. And so like that's kind of the 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 sort of amazing bleeding edge of the field is that there's a lot of knowledge being gained right now that is kind of knitting the concept of blue carbon back into this earth system framework where we're really trying to account for like in totality, where is this carbon moving around? Yeah, and what makes this picture more complicated, uh, Sarah just basically made a really important delineation between the way that these like flowering plants, the angiosperms work versus kelp. So you can't assume that the mangroves and the salt marshes and the eelgrass and the kelp are all photosynthesizing the same way or putting away carbon the same way. And so that and that can change seasonally. It can change daily. It can change hourly based on ocean conditions. It's really, really hard to get a sense of what is happening in real time versus what has been happening over millennia and what might have caused those changes in the past and how our current actions might change their capacity to keep doing these things for us in the future. It's really, really complicated, but also really important for us to have these conversations and figure out how to do the math. Two things. <laughs> Two? I've got seven. Perfect. <laughs> seems like a small job. Uh, two, it seems like you've got it all wrapped up. It, uh, yeah, the way I've... I was under the impression it was a lot worse than this. <laughs> I feel like um, I just like jammed that thing into the back of my head in the matrix, like I'm Neo. And, Neo, and right, I, when he says, I know Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just learned everything about everything on Earth. <laughs> everything. Um, wow. Uh, so I want to, uh, so we talked about kelp a little bit and you talked about mangroves and salt marshes and grasses and stuff. Uh, what are the current tools most helpful uh, as we plan for for an intentional blue blue carbon strategy? And, you know, what is the, what are, what's the state of all those all those plants right now? Mm. That's a really big question. Yeah. 
Feel free to just change it to whatever well, you want. Honestly, <laughs> well, it, it doesn't matter. It, um, you know, like the the ecosystem services that the global ocean is providing us, we should not be taking this for granted. And the the right. role that the biological pump, so this pump that is moving CO2, so CO2 is dissolving into seawater. That CO2 is then being taken up by photosynthesizers and fixed into organic carbon. That carbon is then raining out into the deep sea and moving CO2 essentially out of the atmosphere and into long-term storage in the deep sea. That's facilitated by interactions between species and physical movements of water and um, predation. There's, There's a lot of complexity, but that biological pump, man, that is some good stuff. There was recently a paper out like last week that said that whales themselves, healthy whale populations are some of the most efficient and effective carbon sequestration, quote unquote, tools. Because when when whales, you know, they, they are this high trophic member. They are moving tons and tons of carbon through the environment, consuming these organisms. And then they are, they're pooping a lot. So they're, they're, they're producing waste that sure, then sure, is sure. falling into the deep sea. Then they themselves are reserved in the deep sea. So that kind right. of approach can tell you a little bit like, oh yeah, really robust, healthy ecosystems that are maintaining these naturally occurring biological, biogeochemical processes. Aha, that is the ticket. So it's not very sexy, but it is incredibly important that we have moving forward if really really ambitious conservation targets for huge swaths of the high seas and the coastal ocean i saw the whales thing and my first thought i mean it kind of goes back to was that star trek four i think it was four <laughs> um Don't i was ask just any like of us. i was like i feel like i should go to congress and just i don't know write some sort of i don't know if it's like a maybe you maybe you would call it a ransom note i would probably <laughs> yeah. say how do we how do we make a hundred million whales? <laughs> like there should just be more whales. Like it just seems to make sense. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like more a whale generator humans. would be very popular. With yeah. People. I think oh they, God, they probably so worked cool. on that in the Star Trek spaces. Like we need those narratives. <laughs> like yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. You, like, so but here's the thing, just to play a little devil's advocate, it was like we our lens on this is broken if we're only using dollar signs. And ecosystem services are often just converted to a dollar sign. And that is a bankrupt way of looking at the world. Like instead, we have this very large problem. And instead of continuing to monetize and capitalize and paint this whole moment that we're in as some sort of capitalistic opportunity for more people to make money, like we need to reimagine our relationship with the na- the natural world and to hold account those people who are the most responsible for preventing restoration and protection or capitalizing on destruction itself like there are clear places where we can target action where responsibility lies i'm i'm curious here so as we gently move towards uh, action stuff the the in wonderful drawdown.org has has coastal wetlands listed as number 52 on the list of uh you know ways to save the livable world uh, for us and everybody else saying coastal wetlands can store five times as much carbon as tropical forests over the long term which is something you illustrated for us earlier with those incredible numbers they've got marine permaculture listed as a uh coming attraction i believe under evaluation 
um, like Jurassic Park, right? Hopefully, they won't <laughs> eat you. Uh, and and Brian mentioned we had that incredible conversation with Tom Ford of the Bay Foundation out here and, and Brent Smith from Greenwave about their 3D ocean farming. And it was mostly food focused. Again, kelp is delicious. Clams and, and mussels and oysters, they clean the water, also delicious. But we also talked about how Brent's been doing work with uh, Dr. Ayanna Johnson about getting more ocean detail into future legislation, such as the Green New Deal, which as great as it is. Yep barely mentioned the ocean, which seems crazy again, because like you said, we shouldn't call it Earth. We should call it ocean. I'm going to start calling it ocean. <laughs> I think that sounds great. And all people do, oh, you're a white guy. You just say it and the people do the thing. <laughs> oh, yep. right. That's the way That's it, how works. it works. So anyways, my point is, what work is being done on the uh, federal and state levels, I guess, starting here to support uh, blue carbon? What are the major moves currently being made to protect these resources and even, um, dare I say, enhance enhance them? Because you talked about how incredible this pump is. What are we actually doing so far? Yeah. And the answer, I hope, is something. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question. And so, um, Sarah, obviously, feel free to jump in if uh, if I miss anything or that you want to add anything. But uh, I'll start by saying that you mentioned uh, California. And in fact, a couple of years back, California did pass a bill, like a statewide bill to basically invest resources in studying and restoring seagrass beds here in California. And that was pushed through our state agency, the Ocean Protection Council. I would also add that we're having this conversation at a really timely moment. Basically, a month ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is basically um, a committee, if you will, that is operated by the United Nations. That's a huge oversimplification, but that is essentially what they do. They released a special a special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. And so that really began to discuss in a more formal way, using peer-reviewed literature, the potential for these blue carbon ecosystems to serve as a tool for mitigating the effects of climate change, specifically on the ocean. Um, and then what I think is actually most progressive is that here in the U.S., obviously, we're currently going through the throes of a an election cycle. And while there's a lot of stuff being discussed, uh, something that I think hasn't gotten its due um, sort of its due discussion is the fact that so many of these political candidates are actually putting out climate plans. And I can only speak to this one because I just reported on it earlier this week, but Tom Steyer's plan in specific has a whole section devoted to the ocean. And in the conversation I had with him, he specifically expressed interest in figuring out how we expand our blue carbon reserves. And I think that that, 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 the fact that that's even getting any sort of airtime is amazing. Obviously, um, as somebody who studies the ocean, I think it, we could be having much more in-depth discussions about these things. But I think the fact that there actually is a conversation that is happening by these really um, these people who are in the spotlight right now is really empowering and energizing for me. It's about damn time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. I totally agree with what you what you said, Priya, in terms of like what are the moving pieces on the table, mm-hmm. and um, you know it it comes down to some moral courage and political bravery, the, the political capital to make very robust um, and ambitious conservation targets for lands that need to we need to preserve and value the carbon that's already in these spaces. 
But then just to flip the conversations on the head, because again, the, Mm -hmm. the real, you know, the real work ahead of us is not just conservation and the maintenance of these blue carbon and building places to eat mollusks and eat kelp and have multi-trophic fishing operations and to promote small businesses in coastal communities. It's to stop fossil fuel subsidization of the fishing industry because 54% of high seas fishing, fishing that's happening out outside of nation state waters, 54% of that fishing, those fishing operations would be unprofitable without fossil fuel subsidization. And those fishing operations are the most fossil fuel intensive of all fishing operations globally. Those are the boats that are the biggest, going the farthest, catching the deepest, trolling the longest. Those are really expensive and and, um, carbon intensive um, industries that are only, only surviving because we subsidize fossil fuels. And that's, that is, again, that's about moral courage and political capital right there is to say that is enough. And then the second part of this, just because food and carbon and decision-making is all connected, we have a global society that treats fish like a fun international commodity. And we ship fish mm-hmm. around the world on airplanes on a daily basis. And the the carbon intensity of a fish that is shipped across the world to your grocery store is much, it's orders of magnitude higher than if you're going to eat a fish that was um, caught or farmed close to you. So we, we right. have to stop considering fish as this sort of elite uh, consumer, desirable community, c- consumer object. And that's about culture. And that's about changing the way that we value things inherently inside of culture. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about some of those numbers before and they're really just, in, I mean, it's incredible. It's staggering. I mean, that we, that we, ca- we catch seafood here. I think uh, I'm going to get this number wrong, but we, we export something like... It was something insane. We export like 70% of our seafood. And then the stuff we eat here, we, we, we catch here, we ship to China for processing and packaging, and then, and then we ship back. it back. It's just insane. And you're just like, this can't be right. <laughs> it's, it's not. Uh, and we've normalized it, right? It's, mm-hmm. to- it's business as usual. Right. But we have this is an emperor sure. has no clothes situation. Like we really got to see that we don't have pants on in this situation and, and see how the, our behavior and the normalization of these, of this kind of profiteering is extremely harmful and unhealthy and unsustainable and unjust. So putting those pieces, like trying to start to tell those stories, because we want to, you know, let lift up the businesses and the producers and the aquaculturists that really need to be at the center of the conversation um, and start vilifying these conglomerate, huge corporate fishing uh, global fleets that are profiteering Mm -hmm. and extracting resources in a completely unsustainable way. So it's really, it's complex. And, um, and I think that I wanted to bring that into the blue carbon conversation because Mm -hmm. these activities that are happening in the ocean there, they are all, you know, connected with each other. It's really interesting to read Bren's book. He he was, he was born in Newfoundland and, and then was a commercial fisherman, uh, fisherman on the Northeast and in Alaska and him talking about spending, you know, a couple decades doing that and then watching 
the conglomerates come in and the boats and the tools and the machines mm-hmm. and then everyone being out of work because there were no fish left and how complicated that is and how that made him change to being an ocean farmer and how it took a lot of adjustment, but just realizing like, oh my God, like the, the, the quite literal firsthand experience using his hands to pull fish and then later kelp out of the ocean to realize like, we cannot, we cannot do this. There's, there's nothing left. And, and that's just to start with. And then the things of course that are left, we ship all over the place. So anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I think um... it's enough. <laughs> I think what you just described, like Bren's perspective is, um, it's funny to watch, especially being, um, being a scientist who's watching this new era of this idea of ecosystem-based management where you can't necessarily mm-hmm. just manage one thing. You have to think about everything holistically is really sure. just a repackaging and rebirthing of this idea that so many native communities have had for years. So there's yep. this, um, for for good reason, there is a lot of skepticism around farming fish in the U.S. because we yep. historically haven't necessarily done a very good job of that. And yet you can go up to Puget Sound and see some of the tribes up there that have a really thoughtful way they approach to basically farming fish and making sure that they're that they think about basically what is best for just the next several generations. And it's just a very contained sure. perspective and they see themselves as one with the ecosystem. Um, but I think something that I've learned about recently as somebody who's still learning a lot about aquaculture and studying it here in California is that there are native Hawaiian communities that basically um, have built these Hawaiian fish ponds that are totally dependent on the natural system and where the water moves and how the tides mm. work. And, and this idea that, Somehow, this is like so par for the course that, of course, we have developed this whole new idea called ecosystem-based management. But really, we've just <laughs> right. retooled yeah, this course. concept. Congratulations. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And Right. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. like they're the ecosystems that are getting punished the hardest by sea level rise and climate change and, and things like that. Um, it's these communities who've contributed quite literally nothing to climate change and are <laughs> just, you know, it's a, is it? Jakarta has to move their capital. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's it's right. just you're just like, what do you even? T- can you imagine if white people had to deal with that here? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just it, it is a fucking travesty. But what right, a wild so idea to, to to think about how what you're doing is going to affect the generations after you. Well, that's what Bina mm-hmm. said, right? We had uh, ben, Bina Venkataraman mm-hmm. uh, talking about her new book, uh, The Optimist Telescope, and she was what was her great quote? Uh, something about. Oh God, why is my mind a black hole? Something about basically try to be a better ancestor. Right, right. And that speaks so well to just thinking outside your tiny little view hole. Mm-hmm. I love Bina so much. And I'm really thankful she is for awesome. her scholarship in the world. Yeah. Yeah, she she is just so impressive. Um, part of what... Yeah, and that perspective is so Part helpful. of what Priya just demonstrated is exactly that with the... So... You know, ideas can be trafficked in a way where, like, the joke is, you know, no one dis- no one discovers anything until like uh, a, a a white scientist, you know, puts <laughs> it in a paper, right? And yet, there's generations upon generations of knowledge in other places that have have never that don't gain the prominence and centrality of certain people. And so, part of this yeah. brokering of knowledge is to um, not co-opt 
the knowledge and erase those knowledge producers through that process. And, and so there's a, a surfacing and a revealing often in science that's happening where we are coming to terms with the way that our lineage of knowledge brokers has been through this colonial lens, erasing the ownership and the origination of, of, of scholarship by other people. And so the, the, the work here is to unveil and to not traffic in those kinds of behaviors um, because that, that behavior, I, the world is composed of ideas. And if, even as, mm-hmm. even if you are, you know, you're a charismatic and smart person, if you are negotiating the world as if your ideas are, are only your own and not actually mm-hmm. built on many generations of knowledge builders and careful thinkers right. and community members, you, you are trafficking in some fairly poor behavior. Sure. So that's, that's like the, I think as knowledge workers in this space, we, I was not trained to do that effectively. Like I was trained to use a certain lens where it's like, get yourself in the center and prop yourself up and be ready for criticism. And I don't think that that's what leadership looks like in this space. And, and that is actually why in the climate solution spaces, we all need to be really thoughtful and careful about who we are listening to and, and what those voices look like and, and what those people look like. Because um, the same erasure is happening at the highest levels of climate solutions in these spaces. Um, and that's not what I think excellent scholarship looks like. A thousand percent. And and I do want to backtrack and, and apologize if I I did a poor job of making it clear why I I... I I'm interested in Bren's story, not because he is another white guy and it's easy and he discovered how to ocean farming. It's not that. It was more, he makes very clear and is honest about being part of the problem and being part of that commercial industry and yeah. his patriarchy mm-hmm. and realizing like, I fucked up. Not only is this untenable long-term because we've destroyed communities and ecosystems, I cannot be part of this anymore. And what can I possibly do? I guess it's pulling kelp out of the water because it turns out People have been doing it for a long time. Kelp has been doing it for even longer. (laughs) And it's fucking easy. It requires no input. You know, that's what's incredible. So is I I I wanna make make clear and 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 and, yeah, apologize for that. I I don't mean to intend that he's the first to discover that by by any stretch. It's more just like we need more people who are part of the problem coming out of it and saying like, yeah, no, th- I can't do this. We can't yeah, do this. Yeah, I found his book and his narrative to be really vulnerable and exactly like you just said, like someone who's kind of coming to terms with complicity. And in that way, like mm-hmm. those stories are really beautiful and important. Those are pivot stories that allow, that onboard people in. Um, when And a lot of his story is really, I mean, I read some of it maybe between the lines around like negotiating masculinity negotiating traditional sure. roles for men in community spaces and, sure. and how the center has dropped out for, for many men and, and how do they in, in these spaces reinvent a livelihood that's meaningful and what does masculinity sure. look like through those kinds of transformations? Like what an amazing story to tell. So, yeah. And it is helpful. I mean, I think one of our very first conversations was with a, a gentleman, uh, named Jerry Taylor, and he was a climate denialist for a long time, and basically another white guy. Uh, hi, Jerry. And he <laughs> went on to, you know, another talk show to Argo about climate, yep. and props himself up as this very intelligent guy. He is, and basically, in the green room afterwards, his 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 uh, his, his counterpart was like, hey, um, 
by the way, you can keep arguing this if you want, but you're smarter than this. And I think you know that you're wrong. Right. And I mm-hmm. challenge you to actually do the research. And he did it. And he was like, fuck, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually wrong. And I look like an asshole. And now I have to make my story, not just like climate change is real, but I was wrong. And this is why I was wrong. Yeah. And this is why I think I'm a good messenger for all those other people who are standing on emotion and and falsely, uh, not to say falsely held values, but but, uh, you know, a very brittle house of cards um, that we are being fed in a thousand other places. And, and sometimes that's really helpful. Like when we talk to a reverend and, and, and he, uh, you know, we get to the action steps and say, what can you do? And he says, get yeah. the hell out of the way and let me do my job, up, right? basically. Um, because we aren't the right messengers for that. He is because of his place in that community. And I think it's really interesting when, when re- reformed white guys like Bren and Jerry uh, take it upon themselves, like you said, to kind of, kind of confront that on a number of different levels and not, not perfect specimens by any stretch, but hopefully we can use them to our advantage. Some of us are okay. <laughs> I mean, fine. You anyway, know what I mean? It's not great. A Keep small, going. small percentage. <laughs> Keep going. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So can we uh, get into some, uh, I want to know what some of the biggest obstacles uh, uh, that you both run into in your work, uh, aside from the patriarchy, um, <laughs> you know, be it uh, scientific or organizational or logistically, w- what are the most pressing, you know, annoying frustrations or, or challenges? I think I'll start from a, just thinking about this as a scientist and, and from a really technical perspective is that the environment is really variable. So trying to figure out average estimates for a given ecosystem can be really hard. Um, and one example of this is so, um, in Australia, there's something called the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. And it's the idea that a lot of native people's lands could be harboring a lot of these high, have high carbon sequestration potential, um, including certain blue carbon areas, including mangroves in the Northern Territory. And despite trying to bring some academics into this in 2012, they still haven't really had a chance to fully figure out what of uh, what is the carbon that they have in their on their lands and what is the best way for them to manage it. So thinking about this is is just like a as like a measurement thing, even is like how much blue carbon is there? We we have taken a lot of measurements and have a general understanding of these things, but trying to do this really specifically and fig- and then leveraging that information so that we can then begin restoring or conserving some of these systems is really really challenging. Yeah, I don't know, Sarah, if, if you were going to take that in a different direction. Well, now that the patriarchy's off the table, like, jeez. (laughs) (laughs) It's less that it's off the table. It's more like it's an assumed variable uh, (laughs) that would be great if it went away. Yeah, it is definitely a known known Mm -hmm. in these spaces. And I... I I love your response, Priya, around, like, the true difficulty of measuring and understanding the world. It's not a... It's not a... Uh, a small lift. It's a substantial lift and getting it right Mm. matters. And I think these, I think in my, in my spaces, like one of the, one of the things that just gets under my skin is the narration of um, climate solutions as business opportunities. Um, (laughs) I, I think I think but, but capitalism it, works for what who? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and I, so I want, I think that the stories are really important. Like in this space, 
we are acting out some very fundamental stories about who we think we are in the world and what we think the world really is. And yet I don't really know if we have answered the question, like what kind of species are we to get ourselves to this phenomenally um, vulnerable precipice and yet have a society that is just burgeoning and straining towards restorative justice and towards a world that is um, turning towards the wounding and healing the wounding. Um, Like one of the, one of the tenets that I use is the feminist ethic of care. So there's an idea that there's often an idea about the world, like there's a right thing and a wrong thing to do. And you can kind of partition Mm -hmm. things into right and wrong. Whereas the feminist ethic of care tells us that true right action in this space is around caring and stewarding our relationships with each other, ourselves, and the world. And so things get a lot more gray in that space, but the, the ethic of care is paramount. That it's, it's, the, it's one of the things, the necessities of, of being human is caring for each other. And the, the feminist ethic of care is not accepted as a tenant inside of uh, the, the halls of science. It is, uh, it is maybe brushed off as or disregarded as an, an irrelevant or hyper-emotional or over-feminized narrative about what it means to be human. So we got to turn this ship around um, because the only reason why scientific institutions exist, in my mind, is to steward life on this planet and to, to, to learn about life on this planet and, and maybe life on other planets as well. So... We have to like knit our own humanity back into our search for knowledge in on this finite world. We are kind of in our own ways in in many way, and uh, and that that takes a lot of like moral and social courage, a lot of political courage to do that. I think for for you know for Priya and myself, like we, I I can't speak for you, Priya, but I I do know <laughs> what it means to be like inside of an institution and how vulnerable you can feel Mm -hmm. like going through that institutional process. And we all as researchers have, have different positionalities of vulnerability and we, some of us can't speak publicly and freely. And so those that can, I think really need to, and those that have power, they need to spend that power in, in the most confrontational way possible right now. Um, Cause it's a, it's a hands on deck kind of moment moment in the culture. All, all hands, hands on all hands deck. and flippers I'm and fins, <laughs> pause, everybody. Uh, and, and and you're, yeah, so right about using the, if you got the power, use it. And and obviously uh, there are hundreds and thousands, if not millions of uh, Americans that have been marching and protesting and facing much tougher circumstances for so long. But I think Jane Fonda has been arrested six times this week. <laughs> At least. I'm here I love for her it. so much. I know. I so appreciate I that. Every time I get online, I'm like, oh, this, yeah. another outfit, another picture in handcuffs. She just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it's um, Love it. I'm thankful for it. But of course, building on the shoulders of, of so many people who didn't have the choice of whether to get arrested yeah, on yeah. Tuesday. They just did. Speaking of that. Yeah, this is perfect. So uh, let's get into some some action steps mm-hmm. that, uh, that our listeners can take oh, yes. to support you and all of us that are trying not to die. Um, <laughs> So we do what we like to say that uh, uh, we we can support with our with our voice and our mm-hmm. dollar. So let's start with voice. Uh, what are the big actionable questions that we should all be asking of our representatives? 
Wow. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> there's so many different uh, parts of this, but I think Sarah sort of said this, or at least alluded to it earlier. Maybe I just Let's took it, which is that it's to make sure that they're listening to the right voices. So right. who, if, if, it's, if we're talking about blue carbon or sequestering carbon, it's who is living in communities that are probably on the front lines of being affected by um, sea level rise. And what would it mean to actually take some action towards basically um, drawing down some of these greenhouse gases? Because there is some amount of of climate change that is already going to happen. What we're now thinking about is what can we do 20, 50, 100 years out? So if these are frontline communities now, who are the people who will be on the front lines further on and whose communities are disappearing and and what are the steps that we can take to preserve the services that the ocean provides that is that are going to sort of help with this? And I think something that um, didn't come up in this conversation that I'm, I'm kind of glad it didn't, but I just want to put it out there is that is geoengineering solutions, which are seen as like the human machinist brain opposable thumb combination way <laughs> of fixing this problem um, when really it's about harnessing some of the resources that we've degraded and 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 bring them back up and so just some of those threads can be really hard to draw but i feel like those who are already feeling some of these effects have been able to do that pretty intrinsically and so making sure that they are listening to those voices and maybe if we're in positions of privilege then connecting our representatives with those voices i love that uh dr Murray, climate justice climate justice climate justice Mm-hmm. all action on climate needs to have a justice lens applied to it. Every single choice, every single decision, every single voice, every single story. Uh, it will be wholly inefficient and ineffective without that frame. It will only repeat the same systems of harm and the the same people who have been winning and telling the stories and rewriting history, they will get to rewrite the history of this moment without with impunity, essentially. So who, who tells this story really matters. Mm-hmm. And I, let's get it, let's get our feet like really squarely on the ground. We need a green new deal and we need it now. And mm-hmm. we need that green new deal to include the ocean systems and ocean mm-hmm. carbon sinks. Um, we need the green new deal to include um, a basic frameworks for human rights and climate refugees and climate migrants so that our neighbors in along all of our borders um, and the refugees that are coming into this country are treated with the dignity and respect that international law affords them. Like we have to integrate human rights into our frameworks to address this problem. Otherwise the, the scale of harm that is coming to people is unfathomable. And then like, let's get down to like your daily, like your, your life as a, as an individual, eat some shellfish, eat some shellfish from the (laughs) coastal waters around your home. Like Mm -hmm. eat that local seafood um, mm-hmm. Stop buying seafood. It's so it's good. It's so dang good. Like, teach your kids how to eat oysters. Teach your kids how to shuck mollusks. You know, like, put your feet on the ground in the world and think about where are the producers for the foods that you want to eat and you want to support. And if you have the money, put your money towards those businesses and those people um, to promote and uphold the kind of um, communities that they are trying to build. 
So I think being as um, enmeshed in the communities that are are envisioning future solutions, like that's where you want to be putting your energy and your money and your mouth, basically. I love that. Nice. Um, I had I thought of three little things, and chances are I'm going to remember maybe one out of three <laughs> of these as I chat here. One is, yeah, it feels like with the the migration stuff, we are seeing. Uh, like like the tip of the tip of the mm-hmm. iceberg Good Lord. Uh, for, for the next 10, 20, 50 years. And to be clear, across the board, <laughs> Europe and the US, it has been handled poorly. So mm-hmm. if we can't handle that, then it's just like, guys, you have no idea what's coming. Um, and then I thought about uh, when you're saying climate justice, climate justice, climate justice, and, and what voices are we listening to? And I thought back to our amazing conversation with Rihanna Gunn-Wright, mm-hmm. who's doing so mm-hmm. much of the work on the Green New Deal. And she has been shockingly pressed by old white men in Congress about, do we have to include jobs? Do we have to include the right to work? And things <laughs> like that. Can't we save that till later? And she's like, I just hate you people. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she had this incredible, unique perspective, mm-hmm. which is like, she is the person to be doing this work because she goes home to Detroit and says, I look at my relatives who will not be included in this if I don't write it myself. Mm-hmm. Because And they won't get access to those jobs. They deserve to be part of this because we've designed them out of it for hundreds of years. The least we can do is like, I can give it my best shot from my perspective because those white guys don't have it. And they had their shot and they, and, and they didn't do that. And now I need to be the one to do that as best I can. Yeah, something that I think about a lot, this is sort of going off of the... Um, this idea of going into your backyard that Sarah just shared, like go into your backyard and eat, um, or at least metaphoric backyard and go and eat the local mm-hmm. shellfish and whatever local catch is there. And, um, and I, I am born and raised in California. To me, the ocean has always been a part of my backyard. And so now I also try to plant myself in the Midwest and think about, um, think about what is, why, why does the ocean matter to you if you are in the Midwest? And, um, just thinking about, uh, that even though the, because, um, of what Sarah started us off with, that the ocean is this immense modulator of the climate that we experience. Basically, that is one of the biggest solutions to our problem is to envision that if there wasn't this invisible sponge, because you you don't see the ocean on a daily basis, it might feel like that if there wasn't this invisible sponge, what would you do? And I implore folks who do not have the ocean in their backyard to please go to their representatives as well and and ask them to preserve those services. Because if we if the, the ocean is in addition to taking up the greenhouse gases that you mentioned, Quinn and Brian, it's also taken up 90 percent of the heat. Um, the excess right. heat. And so the ocean is at a precipice too right now. Like we we are in dire straits. And so really thinking about what it will mean. What do what what will our lives look like? What do what do jobs look like in a world where the ocean is not taking up heat anymore? What what do our livelihoods look like? Like that is something that I can't imagine. And sorry, this is a bit of a non sequitur. I thought it was related and I guess it really wasn't. <laughs> I was That's my just entire falling life, on everything that we've been talking about, um, I guess. But yeah, I think that blue carbon seems like something that is really only for people who live along the coast. And it is so much more than that. And I just, quite frankly, don't know how to say that enough or say that any better than I can right now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, the you know, I think 
middle America has gotten some of that message Mm -hmm. if they haven't put the dots together yet with the incredible floods that have been happening for the past two years and and things like that. It it is like, again, this, Mm -hmm. it's not earth. It's our planet is, is, is our ocean and it affects everything in ways we're only starting to comprehend. Uh, And, and that includes all of those things that includes hurricanes that basically settle over an Island and don't move anymore Mm -hmm. and what that can do. And we've seen, you know, two of those so far (laughs) and, and, uh, and more is coming and that and that means flooding and that means uh you know drought and 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 all of those things so so do it now yeah. you know we're all we are all part of that and i think when we think about climate refugees we do think about sea level rise but i think what you just brought up Quinn, about basically middle america dealing with floods and all sorts of other sort of catastrophic natural disasters um we're going to have multiple kinds of climate refugees not just folks running away from inundating um waters in, from the ocean sure. so Oh God, look yeah. at India. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the suicide rates have tripled in northern mm-hmm. India because it's too hot to plant. Right. And, and uh the the uh you know, the monsoons are more unpredictable than ever before. And and what does that do? Right. It's um it's incredible. In in this space where we are like juggling with the wounding of the world and how do we live on a living planet, you know, I I when I have these conversations with people, I always I'm I'm trying in these conversations to remind all of us that this was a mortal bargain to begin with. Like, (laughs) you know, there was, there was no guarantee that life was going to be easy anyway. And that this is a time where we can very clearly find a meaningful way to live in the world. And that is a door that can open and can bring great freedom and insight to people, especially people that are juggling with the internal grief and violation. Um, and I, I do think, you, you, you know, you talk about people um, taking their own lives because of the grief and the, the violation mm-hmm. that they feel. This is, this is a real thing. And, and kids are hearing these messages, right? And, and every, every time I, I really want to get out in front of this message because when kids hear this message, what they hear is that their very presence on this world is violating the world. And what what often right. kids will then decide is that, well, I shouldn't be here on this world. And and what what harm we are doing, um, what compounding harm we are doing. So I I would suggest that in this space, the story is really that we are gifts to this world at this moment. And we are very powerful actors for good. And how are we going to spend our finite time? Because again, we only had a little bit of time to begin with here. So just as Bina said in her book, you know, stewarding our role as ancestors and getting really clear about what we want to leave behind us, that that is a very meaningful path right now. Um, that is, that's a door that, that we, that I welcome, you know, folks to to walk through with me. Um, it's hard, but I think it's a way to find really meaningful connection and community as well. It is, and and man, if even a, th- a third to half of your day to day, or weekly, or monthly, or yearly, or long term decisions are come under that guideline, then you're doing all right, and you're 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 you are effectively making change more more than most folks and it feels great um to to be led in that direction uh by something that benefits you and 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 everyone else as well 
um, as opposed to just, you know, <laughs> returns to shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So listen, guys, we are just so far over the time we asked of you today. Uh, I couldn't appreciate it more. It is 90, speaking of climate change, 96 in Studio City, California Woo! today. We forgot to turn on our air conditioner before fine. we recorded. So I'm just soaking wet. Yeah. Yeah, um, are y'all affected by the Palisades fire at all? I meant to ask at the beginning. I'm sorry I didn't... Oh, God, no. Screenwriting's not going that well. Um, no, no, no. Uh, no. Um, no, you know, it's, look, it's everybody. I, I've lived up in these hills for forever mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, it's a fire nightmare. If, if it comes, like, you're just not getting out, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've realized with what happened uh, last year a little mm-hmm. bit on, on the west side um, and then in the Palisades, which is quite literally on the ocean, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it can happen anywhere. You know, yeah. this is just... the this is the new reality out here and it's going to change a lot of, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's like the what third or fourth most expensive real estate in the country. It's crazy. Anyways, well, we, we can't thank you guys enough. We've got a last few questions here. Brian uh, contractually will not let me call it a lightning round um, because it is, it is not a lightning. It should have never been called that. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> Look, I just, I didn't have another word okay. for it. All right. We're 83 and I still haven't figured it out. I'm busy. Anyways. Dr. Myrie, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Oh, God. Um, I'm grappling with that on a day-to-day basis. I, I mean, I, I, think, <laughs> I think I felt really fucking powerful giving birth, honestly, like bringing my child into the world and like the, the wisdom of my body, like the things that my body did in that space, like, wow, I was very powerful. And, um, hell yeah. yeah. So, and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still trying one. to figure out how to use that doctor title to the, mo- to be as effective as possible <laughs> in public, because I, 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 uh, I have some power, I have a perch and I want to use it, um, in the best way possible. I love that. Uh, almost Dr. Priya. <laughs> um, I think I would say that. I realized this when Sarah gave a guest lecture in a class that I was taking um, about coral reefs and how they were degrading. And I real I I always knew I liked science, but I didn't realize that science could actually be used to save an ecosystem. Um, and now in this day and age, save the world, really, quite truly. And so I but I think that as I have developed my expertise and and realized that that there is room to have really compassionate but also really difficult discussions about living in a burning world. I have tried to insert myself wherever I feel like I fit in and sometimes even in places where I don't. Um, And so maybe that wasn't the answer you were looking for. But basically, since the onset of my scientific career. (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. I love that it included Sarah. (laughs) And speaking of that, both the segue of segues and also this feels like the most layup question of all, considering how you guys spent the first half of this conversation. Uh, To both of you, who is someone in your life that's positively (laughs) impacted your work in the past six months? Oh my gosh. I think, I mean, this is just like, Mm. you know, the, the, the personal is political from a feminist lens and the, um, my my partner is a uh, chef here in Seattle, and running a restaurant Ooh. is like <clears throat> pretty amazing, difficult work. Like we are just like solid middle class people essentially. But watching someone make 
really beautiful, delightful things that are lovingly crafted as a practice, as a daily practice is, wow, that's so amazing because it's kind of shown me like, how do I bring that daily practice, that love, like that, that sort of excellence in just chopping vegetables, that excellence in like having a relationship with my grocer and with my fishmonger Mm -hmm. and like the people that I'm connected to, how do I create a, a web around me of loving and excellent interactions and work. So I've, I've been learning a lot. Um, I like to take credit for his talent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you should. (laughs) Um, Um, Going back to the beginning, the only reason I do wear pants every day is because my wife sets them up. (laughs) There you go. That's it. Stop it. Ladies, what do you do when you feel... Priya didn't get to answer, Brian. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Yes, no, it's okay. Um, I would have inserted anyway because I'm really excited to share my answer. But um, I would say that it's my friend and colleague, Lynn on Cat. She and I met at a climate um, engagement program that was run by a colleague of mine and Sarah's named Christy Croker, who's also incredible. Yeah, Christy. Yeah. And Lynn on and I basically have had these like overlapping circles and we keep meeting at the science policy and communication interfaces. We both independently found our way to writing at Forbes Science. And we both also lost a dear friend over the summer. And um, and her partnership and her friendship and just her intelligence and integrity um, is really inspiring. And um, she's somebody who I think uh, needs to have a higher platform. If you want to talk about fungi and climate change, please bring her on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely do yeah. That. she is incredible and articulate. Um, and she also runs or co-ran, I think she's actually um, handed it off to someone else now, but co-ran a project called Reclaiming STEM. And it was about bringing unheard voices back into the science and technology sphere. Um, and so um, just being able to watch her from afar, but then also call her a friend is a real privilege. Awesome. Uh, we will definitely have to get her on the line. That sounds super cool. That was a great answer. I apologize for moving on. No, to the next it's all good. He, no, he, no, look, we need to call him on it. That's right. <laughs> We've got to hear. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, maybe you could answer the next question first as a... Sure. As an apology. <laughs> um, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? What's your self-care? So that's an a you that's a very timely question. I think I I'm just emerging out of some very intense burnout that is related to the loss of the friend that I just mentioned. Um and to be honest, I did a whole lot of nothing and it was incredibly therapeutic. <laughs> I downloaded um a game that I will not buzz market because I can't remember what it's called, but it on my phone for 3 days straight I built houses for dragons. Um, and I did not know that you could do that, but it was at the end of that 72 hour period, I was a radically different person and I showered for like the first time in eight days. So I think that is the most honest answer I can give. And I think now I would say that what I do is I actually go out and I 
look at nature. Um, now in the, when I, when I feel like I might be receding back into some of that, I will go and just try to close my eyes and feel the wind and smell whatever plants are around me and try to remember that for everything that is going wrong, there is so much in my local space that is absolutely right. And I'm lucky enough to live right next to a hill that I can climb up in the span of like five or six minutes. And I can actually see the Bay Bridge and the San Francisco Bay. So having that immense privilege in my backyard, in my very, very expensive backyard is something (laughs) else that I hold on to. Well, that's super cool. And we're very sorry to hear about your loss. It is a it is always a tough thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, okay, Brian, your favorite question. Wait, Wait Sarah didn't answer th- now. Doesn't oh, Sarah get shit. to answer that? <laughs> Damn it, it's my turn. turn. Forget it. Um, Forget it. God, that makes me feel so much it. better. This has been a great 83 episode. Sorry about us. <laughs> you guys, this is going really well. I, you know, I, I could tell you like, my negotiation around anxiety and depression and the um, the toolkit that I have built um, that ranges from like marijuana to Zumba to sex to friendships. Like sure. I got a <laughs> whole situation, but I, I think Smart one of the things woman. that's been really helping me these days is just like trying to write really bad jokes. I, I I really find I love Whoa. I I I find like laughing and humor to to be like the thing that that takes all the stress actually down to the ground. Um and so my kid and I have been writing some terrible jokes. We've been reading um the the series Captain Underpants. So yeah, oh, I have yeah. a great joke for you guys. Um okay, Priya, uh, ready? Let's uh, do it. God, thing, um, I was going to ask. Knock, I'm knock. so happy. Who's there? Climate change. Climate change who? Climate change pooped on your head. <laughs> That's it. Oh my God. Your kid must love That's this it. so much. <laughs> it works every time. But by the way, it does feel like it pooped yep. on your head a little bit every day. Oh my goodness. I'm That's so happy. <laughs> That's, by the way, that is the title of our episode. Oh, for sure. We'll just send Climate that change right off to the producers. Knock, knock. <laughs> Perfect. I'm so excited. Uh, that's so precious. <laughs> uh, I really thought, which this is, this is close though, but I really thought, Sarah, you were finding a way to integrate climate change and your kid's love of butt jokes. And it seems oh like God. you have actually achieved No, it actually right. it is. Yeah. It's <laughs> really special. Looking very forward to the climate change, knock, knock yes. joke, stupid jokes book. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, ladies, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what book would it be? Uh, it's called Fuck You Very Much. Um, get out of hmm. office. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> cool. Did you that write book. that book, Sarah? <laughs> Is that a second printing? Is that a... Yeah. Perfect. Sounds great. Amazon. Yeah. We have an Amazon book list <laughs> for right him, under, so that's perfect. Yeah. One, two, three, four, North. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Did you have something similar? I, I mean, I... I, I think I've heard other people on your podcast say this, which it's not clear that um, our current president has the time or wherewithal can't read. to be quite frank to read. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, yeah, no, no, no. But no. so I would, if it was a book, I would recommend Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez. And it's about how basically the world was designed by and for men. And it's amazing. 
And in fact, one of my colleagues on Forbes Science just published um, a review of the book today. So you can go check that out. And then and she goes by Girl Scientist. So you can uh, check out that review if you want. But I would I was going to say, since he actually spends most of his time on Twitter, he should really mm-hmm. check out some of Sarah's Twitter threads. I actually think that is more Ooh, accessible nice. for him. Although I think he would be very upset and just block Sarah if he hasn't already. So there you go. That's I like that idea. That's pretty That's a better answer than mine. Um, <laughs> no. no. I loved yours. We loved your answer. <laughs> there's no judging here. Yeah, there's a limit. Uh, we're not judging you, Sarah. We're judging somebody else yeah. clearly in this yeah. question. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Um, well, boy, uh, how does one say thank you for such a wonderful experience? Um, thank you guys so much for your time and all that you're doing and your perspective and your efforts now and in the past and in the future. Um, we are, are lucky to have you and, and, uh, uh, you know, as Greta says, uh, you know, don't just thank us, get off your asses and help. So if there's anything we can ever do, please tell us how else we can help or just get out of the way. <laughs> Where can our listeners follow you on the internet? Speaking of Sarah's Twitter feed. Yeah, you, I'm on Twitter. Um, I have lots of cat photos. So, you know, um, Great. I, I'm Perfect. definitely winning Twitter with the cat photos. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. at Sarah E. Myrie. So that's S-A-R-A-H-E-M-Y-H-R-E on Twitter. Excellent. Priya? Yeah, I'm also on Twitter at P-R-I-Y-O-L-O-G-Y or at Priology, which is a Twitter handle I came up with when I was 22 and had a blog also that was called Priology, a self-study. So, oh, that's <laughs> which is so, so good. douchey. Um, Excellent. And so millennial. Feels like we could have a whole like After Dark type podcast <laughs> yeah. just about digging into yeah. that. But um, I have a different blog that you can now follow, which is my Forbes column. And so you can yes. find that at blogs.forbes.com backslash Priya Shukla. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, we will throw all of that into the show notes as well as uh, the climate change knock-knock joke. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, and w- once again, uh, thank you so much for your for your time and everything. This uh, was wonderful. We, we really appreciate it, guys. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having us. This was absolutely fabulous. I had so much fun. Super fun. And love you, Priya. I'm usually... Yeah, love you too. Excited <laughs> right. to connect um, some other time on a different podcast, hopefully. Yeah, I know. Just our podcast tour. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Gonna, <laughs> you I'm should. Put on a fake mustache and start another podcast just to have you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, guys. Get out of here. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great rest of your week. Really appreciate right, it. Thanks, you ladies. Too. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. 
Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.